May we have your attention, please? In a previous episode, I talked with Walt Cartwright from DB Cargo and Simon Martin of Network Rail about Trespass. Our conversation was around the work RSSB has done to support the industry with assessing and preventing trespass. A few years ago, DB Cargo was fined because it was judged not to have taken adequate measures to prevent a trespass incident at one of its freight yards, which resulted in the death of a young person. So, one issue raised was the need to understand what mitigations are adequate to satisfy Her Majesty's Inspector of Railways that a company has taken measures that would be judged to have reduced the risk of trespass to be as low as reasonably practicable. Today, I'm joined by David Whitmarsh from the Office of Rail and Road. David is currently Acting Principal Inspector of Railways for Scotland. This means he's leading the ORR's Scotland Railway Safety Team based in Glasgow which covers work with Network Rail, Scott Rail, Caledonian Sleeper, and operations on the Glasgow subway. Welcome, David, and thank you for joining me today. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and tell our audience how you came to your current role? Yes, hello, Ant. I'm David Whitmarsh, and as you say, I'm currently Acting Principal Inspector of Railways, leading ORR's railway safety team in Scotland. I've been a health and safety professional for almost 30 years now, and since the year 2000, I've worked as an inspector in the Railway Inspectorate, originally in the Health and Safety Executive, and now in ORR. In my time, I've covered a range of railway safety roles, including as a policy and strategy leader for level crossing risk control within HMRI, an ORR account holder for several train operators, and lead inspector in Network Rail's Wessex route, and now in Scotland, where I've been based for 15 years. Thank you, David, and welcome. My first question is about trespass on the mainline railway. Unlike most other places, trespass on the railway is a criminal rather than civil offence, and trespassers can be fined and even imprisoned. So there are examples of where this has happened. Could you explain why the ORR might choose to prosecute a railway undertaking rather than have the police prosecute the trespassers? Of course. When it comes to the nature of enforcement action that ORR takes, it's very much a matter of decisions that being made on a case-by-case basis, applying our established enforcement policy process to the evidence that we've gathered. Those organisations in control of infrastructure on the railway have clear duties in railway health and safety law to prevent, so far as is reasonably practicable, unauthorised access to the infrastructure. ORR acts to secure improvements where network rail or station operators fall short of compliance. But that action can range from verbal through written advice to formal enforcement notices, with prosecution only in the most serious cases. A significant consideration is the extent to which any deficiencies in the compliance by the duty holders expose vulnerable people to risk, particularly children, who are less likely to understand the risks that the railway poses to them. Where trespasses by adults and involves overcoming boundary measures that have resulted from a compliant application of, say, network rail standards, for example, the enforcement balance would shift to focus on the trespassers' actions. Prosecution for trespass falls within the British Transport Police consideration rather than ORR. So it's, in essence, it's a balance of does the situation meet with accepted standards of of compliance for fencing and other measures? And we take that into account when we come around to deciding whether we should take formal prosecution action against a railway duty holder. And it's also not inconceivable that action could be taken against both parties in a particular case. Thank you, David. I think that clears things up. One train operator has in recent years had two large fines imposed on it following prosecutions by the ORR. Could you explain how the sums involved are arrived at and where that money goes? 
the decisions on penalties in any health and safety prosecutions are entirely a matter for the court and not influenced at all by the ORR or the HSE. Sentencing is governed by rules and procedures followed by magistrates and judges and in Scotland by the sheriffs. But in setting the le levels of fines, there's generally a starting point on a standard scale that's dependent on the nature of the particular offence. That's then modified by the judge or the magistrates to take account of other factors, such as the actual outcome of an incident. In cases such as trespass, there may be a, a consideration of contributory negligence by the trespasser. Also considered are the history and attitude of the defendant, for example, whether corrective action was taken promptly after an incident, or there have been previous similar incidents. And all these things are weighed by the judge in coming up with a fine. As an example, a guilty plea generally leads to a reduction of up to 25% for an early plea on a starting point. But there's no correlation between the levels of fines or the starting points and the value for preventing a fatality, for instance. The fines themselves end up back in the Treasury. There's no direct link between the levying of a fine and the funding of a health and safety regulator, be that ORR HSE. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, in your answer there, you mentioned adequate measures to prevent trespass. In Section 10 of the Railway Regulation Act 1842, which for those that don't know was just 13 years after Stevenson's rocket first ran, it includes the phrase erect and to maintain and repair good and sufficient fences. Obviously, trains are larger, faster and run over a far larger network today than in the 1840s. Can you tell us what the ORR would consider to be good and sufficient for today's railway? Yes, of course I can. The, the acceptable measures should really be based upon a site-specific risk assessment, taking into account the local variations and characteristics of an area. After privatisation in the 1990s, the Railway Safety Miscellaneous Provisions Regulations were enacted, acted, and Regulation 3 sets out a requirement uh, with a revised wording that is to prevent, so far as is reasonably practical and as far as necessary for the purposes of safety, unauthorised access to the railway infrastructure. So in getting to a point that's acceptable, we should look at risk assessment first. Because those assessments should include, for example, whether the risk is greater as a result of electrification equipment for be being present, for example, higher line speeds or traffic densities. And we would also expect better fencing where children interface with the railway and where history shows that there is a, a local problem of trespass, the sort of hotspot approach is referred to. And of course, there's always a security consideration of keeping people away from high value critical assets just for their operational integrity. In determining what actually represents a good boundary measure, Network Rail has established standards and processes for determining the right type of fencing at particular locations. As a general rule of thumb, post of wire or 1.2 metre high stock fencing is perfectly suitable for vast stretches of rural railway. But in urban areas or around critical assets, a minimum height of 1.8 metres is more likely to be needed. And in many cases, a fence would have to be of a palisade type and could even be supplemented by additional trespass prevention measures such as raptor-type guarding. Thank you very much. You mentioned the site-specific guidance, and the industry has asked RSSB to produce a good practice guide for assessing trespass risk, uh, which also covers how to assess mitigation measures and whether that trespass risk has been reduced to as low as reasonably practicable. Do you feel that the good practice guide is adequate or is there more that needs to be done? I'm very impressed with the, 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 the guidance. And I, although I've not had occasion to apply it from the perspective of a duty holder, it's been a really useful reference for me as an inspector when benchmarking assessments that we come across during inspections or investigations. 
and looking at duty holder procedures within their safety management system for dealing with these risks. It captures the wide range of considerations needed in successful assessment of trespass potential, and that includes the motivations that may drive people to trespass that perhaps wouldn't come to mind from a sort of technical engineering point of view. And it sets out a logical structure for the process. It also captures that preventing trespass is about more than providing a bigger or a stronger fence at a particular location. Other technologies, such as analytical cameras, education and provision of other sort of diversionary activities for those maybe who may be inclined to trespass, have important roles to play in the bigger picture. And the guidance captures all of those elements. As an inspector, I think I would say that if I were to come across a duty holder that was not applying the approach, which is in the guidance, or something very similar to them, I would certainly be bringing it to their attention as a useful means of meeting their legal duties in the area. But all of that said, as with any risk assessment guidance, I'd caveat comments to say that the process has to be followed diligently and duty holders must follow through to make improvements that the assessment identifies as being needed. And that's often a weak point in management systems. Okay, thank you very much, David. The ORR's Risk Management Maturity Model 2019 otherwise known as RM3, encourages railway undertakings to collaborate to achieve a continual improvement of the way they manage risk. Do you think this new guidance is going to help the industry to improve the ways it assesses, manages and mitigates trespass risk? Yes, I think it will improve them if it's followed, as well as providing the excellent structure to approaching assessment. The guidance clearly shows that the route to successfully meeting the trespass risk control challenge is multi-party. Some of those parties may be outside the usual range of industry players, for example, local authorities or organisations such as sports clubs that can provide diversionary activities. And I particularly hope that the guidance helps duty holders identify and make use of those opportunities in the context of that sort of bigger picture of the the trespass pattern. David, thank you. That's been very insightful, I hope, for all our listeners. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about how the Office of Rail and Road looks at trespass risk and mitigations. I hope those involved in trespass prevention feel more reassured about what it is they need to do to reduce the risk of trespass to be as low as reasonably practicable, and that we are together able to continue to reduce both the incidence of trespass and some of the tragic consequences that arise from it. But to stop trespass completely, the only message we can give is to the public at large. If you don't have permission to be on the railway, don't go on the railway. I'd also like to thank all our listeners for staying with us to the end. And if you have any comments about this or any other of our podcasts or ideas for another episode, please let me know by emailing podcasts at rssb.co.uk. And don't forget to visit the blogs page on the RSSB website where you'll find the show notes for every episode, which include links to some useful related resources. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.